Hello everyone, Simon here from snapshooter.com and you're listening to the Pushing to Production podcast. On this podcast, we focus on the purely technical side of running a project, learning about how startups go from code to production. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Pushing to Production. I'm joined this week by Ed Freifogel. Did I get that correct? You did indeed, you did indeed. Well done. From Open Cage, a, a geocoding service. Could you um, introduce yourself and briefly explain the business side of your business, like the, sure. not the technical side? First up, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, so I am one of the two founders of a company called Open Cage, and we basically do one thing, and that is we have an API for geocoding. For listeners who perhaps don't know, geocoding is the process whereby there are two types of geocoding. There's forward geocoding. You give us um, an address or, or a location, and we turn that into geographic coordinates. Or reverse geocoding, which is the opposite. You give us geographic coordinates, and we send you back uh, information about that location, like the address and things. The main differentiator of our service is that we do this with open data. So if you like, we can talk all about that. But fundamentally, I think from, I guess, the point that's relevant to listeners is so we have a high volume API that people around the world are using. The business, it's a, it's a freemium model. So um, anyone can sign up for a free trial. And then if you want to use it ongoing and, or um, in production or at higher volumes, then you can purchase different packages, either a one-time purchase, if you just have kind of a one-time need or subscriptions. And we've been doing this for seven years now. So have learned a lot along the way. Yeah. So you're competing with the likes of Google then? Yeah. You, it, it, Google Maps is probably our biggest competitor. I would say basically we have two competitors. We have Google Maps, which is by far the most well-known geo service out there. Although there are, of course, others as well that are also very good. And then the other competitor is people trying to do it themselves in-house. And, and in our case, that's particularly an issue because, as I said, we're using open data. So it's not like we have any unique data that no one else can get. But, you know, the, the data that we're using is publicly available. And so people can do it themselves. But that's quite hard. And, and obviously, we've learned a lot of things along the way. So I presume you must have quite a big database to handle then of all the forwards and reverse lookups. Yeah, we have, well, quite a few different databases. So um, I guess from a strictly technical standpoint, it's more what you would call a meta API in the sense that you send us your, your API query and then behind the scenes, we're fanning that out to many different services, depending on, you know, we look at the query of, of the location and then pick the services that make sense. So there are many different geographic data sources, many different open geographic data sources. By far, the one that is biggest that, that most listeners may know is something called OpenStreetMap. And so we're, we're very active in the OpenStreetMap community, but there are quite a few others as well. Usually national databases, different countries have opened their data. Anyway, so we have lots of different databases behind the scenes. Does, is that a bit of a nightmare with breaking changes or are these APIs under the hood quite stable? No, they're in constant development. So there, there are always two issues. So one is the software, and then the, the second is the data. The data is changing continually. And it depends on which, which data source. Some of the national ones, they're on a very kind of predictable schedule where the data updates once a quarter or whatever. But OpenStreetMap, for example, gets about 5 million edits per day, every single day. Oh, crazy. <laughs> so that's changing literally all the time. The software, of course, changes a, a bit more slowly, and and you know we're, we're hosting our own version of the software, so we can control when we change the software. Okay, and, and actually, we're contributing back as well to the changes to the software. So, so what is your tech stack then to handle? I presume 
millions of requests a day. Yeah. So, well, the first point to note is, yeah, so it's it's tens of millions of requests per day from people all over the world, customers all over the world. So first of all, there's no like quiet time, really. It's not like in the middle of the okay. night. It's not like you can be like, oh, well, we'll just upgrade everything at midnight or whatever. And literally the, the sun never sets on our API request load. Okay, so the tech stack, right? So first of all, uh, request comes into load balancers. I should say we're we're hosting all of this ourselves. So we have we have three major pieces. So the first piece is our website, which is kind of our marketing site. And I guess one thing that's unique about our service compared to most SaaS services is many many people they come to our website and they have to sign up and then they get an API key and then they don't really ever need to come back to our website. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, they can if they want. They can get usage graphs or whatever, but. Many, many people never come back. So the website is hosted with Heroku, um, it's Rails, and that's fine. And actually, not that much happens on the website. Okay. It's kind of more just a marketing kind of page. So from your point of view, that's kind of a bit low maintenance then. It's all, exactly. you know, the hosting is managed. So the, the real action is the API. So we host with a company called Hetzner, very well known in Europe multiple redundant locations. And basically, a request comes in, uh, goes through a load balancer, and the core of our application, kind of the piece, the routing piece, that's all written in Perl. And so we have a lot of logic there that, as I said, looks at the parameters of the request and then based on that decides which behind the scenes geocoders to send this to um, in kind of a microservice style architecture. Um, usually, so a request comes to us and then we send it out to four or five or up to 10 different you know, other geocoders behind the scenes. Each one of those, this is where it starts to get complicated. So each one of those, typically these are all open source geocoders, but they're all written in all kinds of different languages. So we kind of, this is one of the biggest challenges that we have is that, you know, we need kind of need to stay on top of developments in all these different geocoders and, and they're all in a very diverse technological state. And that can be, there's stuff in Python, PHP, Java, uh, Node, Perl, I, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Does that mean between you and your co-founder, you're quite proficient in lots of different languages? Yeah, I mean, and so some of those are updating frequently. Some of them are are updating very rarely. Some of them are basically just in total kind of legacy mode and and never update. But anyway, so then the requests come back and then we merge. You know, we kind of have to get the results, deduplicate them, clean them up, enhance them with some other types, you know, data. And then finally, we send that back out to the requester. That's interesting. That's not what I had in mind. I really? What did you had, think? Some reason I thought you would have had you would have had a big database, a ref- big database that you refresh from these sources. Obviously, with uh, OpenStreetMaps, as you say, with that many edits a day, that would be. Uh... Well, I mean, we do have that on the kind of second tier. So okay, <laughs> but in those cases, it's not that we are really writing our own software. We're kind of basically running various open source software packages. Um, so in the case of OpenStreetMap, the main geocoding service is a thing called Nominatum. And so we're running our own versions of Nominatum. I mean, we also actively contribute to those yes. things, but it's not that we're writing our own secret special thing. No, no, no. We're obviously adding value for customers somewhere, as in. <laughs> well, it can be a challenge in that some customers do want, some customers will come to us saying like, oh, I want just Nominatum. And actually our system, we do multiple things and then we merge them and clean them up. Yeah. And, and so it's difficult for us to give them just that. And frankly, I'm not sure it's such a high value proposition for us. Yeah, that makes sense. So you say you're with Hertzner. What Are you running on the cloud services there or are you taking advantage of their pretty competitive Dedis solutions? 
we we do use some of the cloud services. It depends. I mean, we still we have many, many different things going on. But the biggest servers, the ones that the things that have the most load and, and are being used, those, those are kind of our own dedicated servers that we maintain ourselves and do everything on them. I mean, we have looked in the past at things like AWS or whatever. Um, and frankly, it's 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 always very expensive. For uh, yes. I mean, it's just it's not it it, it it's I'm and I'm actually kind of horrified when some people tell me they're how much they're spending on things like AWS. Like I mean, not just in absolute terms, but just as a percentage of the revenue of their company. Oh, it's okay. it's really kind of shocking. <laughs> I find. I mean, I guess I guess it depends which skills they have in the team and things like that. So you know, if you don't have the ability to do it yourself, then or the inclination to do it yourself, that's fine. But we do have the ability to do it ourselves. I'm in that camp of AWS. I think our spend is around nine hundred to a thousand dollars a month. Yeah, yeah. But I guess I it depends. It depends. <laughs> what, but is that a lot yeah. or a little? Right. It depends relative to what it would be if you had your own server. I'm still burning credits, so at the moment it's nothing. Yeah, <laughs> it's very uh, close to zero percent. <laughs> that's that's how they get you addicted, isn't it? That is, yeah. So how do you deal with pushing changes out then if you're running uh, quite a lot of um well I mean first of all, services and stuff it's rare that you know obviously we're not changing all the pieces at once but first of all as I said so the data is changing all the time depending yep. on which uh, database um then the individual pieces for each one we have a lot of tests we invest super heavily in tests um so as I said the core piece the core thing that I would consider kind of our business logic and geocutter that's all written in Perl, and Perl has a very, very good um, culture of testing. So the basic process is, you know, a developer would make a change locally. Of course, they can run the whole environment locally, uh, run all the tests. Then every change that gets checked in to uh, Git triggers a CI build. We use Travis, and then hopefully that runs. And then once that runs, it can be launched. And then uh, we also have nightly tests running on every server as well that let us know if there's any problems. Sometimes, I mean, you know, there are different issues that can come up. One issue is, did we break something in the code? The second issue is we're often testing, you know, it's like we put in this input and we expect a certain output, but okay. that that depends on, did the data change? So sometimes yes. the data can change. And obviously there are different strategies there. You can, you can create kind of a, a static database that you use only for testing, but then that's not really replicating what the actual customers see. Yeah, that makes for some complicated. Ideas. So we kind of have a mix of strategies, but the fundamental thing is lots and lots and lots of tests. Perfect. Does that mean sometimes you wake up on a Monday morning and you've got a whole suit of uh, failed tests because things have changed? Yeah, sometimes. But, but <laughs> it's, rare, it's rare that yeah. everything changes like that. Usually it's more one or two, but I mean, I mean, we have thousands of tests. It very much is the case that, you know, a user or a customer complains about something and then we go to fix it. The first thing we do is write the test to kind of verify the fix. And and so, I mean, the thing about our business is that I that I think perhaps this may be different than, than some other SaaS businesses or whatever, is the way customers think about our business is kind of very much the way you think about the electricity company, right? Like you just want it to work. You People see it as a utility and so people are not really interested in that many new features. It's more just they want complete dependability. Okay. So in that regard, a lot of the work we do is about creating redundancy and dependability and making sure that it just works. It just works, right? Yeah, especially now, now that we're several years in, 
you know, the core platform is really quite stable. And, um, you know, we are still constantly extending it and doing things, but but it's rare that we have big radical changes to things that, you know, trigger a lot of a lot of breakage or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. That is interesting. So you say you have a freemium model. How do you cope with abuse? I'm yeah. just interested. How do you cope with abuse on the other endpoints as well? Because when, whenever you, I see providers offering basically API access to things, I've, you know, there's a high potential for abuse or just absolute hammering or, you know. Um, yeah, this is one of the biggest problems. Denial of service attacks. Or- yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, and actually there are two types of denial of service attacks. Of course, there's the intentional malicious one, but then there's also just someone makes has a mistake in their code and all of a sudden it's an endless loop that's just blasting us. And usually people like to check that one in at about 5.55 on a Friday afternoon <laughs> before they head to the pub. And uh, so, no, that is a big issue. Um, and actually, when I was thinking of some advice I could give people, one of the biggest challenges we face is uh, you cannot make the assumption that the people at the other end are like good programmers. At all, like we have a lot of a lot of people who are frankly just not good programmers, and will gladly, you know, have an endless loop that will blast the hell out of us, and and be completely blissfully unaware of it. Right. So with the premium issue, so the way our service works is people can come and sign up because we know they need to test it before they can um, become a customer. Mm-hmm. So you know, very very simple, straightforward sign up process on our website, and that gives you an API key. And that API key is limited to 2,500 requests per day. And it's actually not time limited because we have experimented with kind of time limits. But the problem is if you have a time limit, you know, you say, oh, it's only good for one week. Then people are just like, oh, well, you know, I got busy, so I wasn't able to test. You end up having a lot of support issues around that. So instead we said, look, it's not time limited, but, you know, you can't use it in production if you're using it on an ongoing basis. Um, which is pretty easy to detect from the usage patterns. And so we ask people to upgrade. The problem is, of course, some people don't want to upgrade. So they go through, it is amazing how much work people will put in to register for multiple accounts and things like that to avoid paying. I mean, our cheapest plan is 20 euro, right? And I mean, people gladly put in days of work to avoid spending 20 euro. It's unbelievable. Do they attempt to automate the signups or do they just go? Some do, some do. I mean, there are different (laughs) levels of sophistication. I mean, there there are some, I mean, you know, some people are completely naive. You know, it'll be like Bob Smith at Gmail and then they'll immediately sign up for Bob Smith plus one at Gmail and then Bob (laughs) Smith plus two at Gmail. And we're like, come on, man. I mean, mean, you know, and, and we have a lot of, we've had to build a lot of logic to detect that and block those people. And, um, you know, and then we have a series of emails that go out and explain to people, look, please don't do this. Here's why you shouldn't do this. You know, like, you know, by, by becoming a customer, you help us, you know, give back to the open street. <laughs> I community. imagine those people don't care. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I'm sure the majority of the emails don't get read. But nevertheless, but so then eventually we start blocking them. And then the ultimate thing we do is, and we do warn about this in the emails, as we say, you know, at some point we just start giving you back random results. So we don't answer your requests correctly. That seems like a genius solution to do. Well, it, it still depends on them actually <laughs> even looking at it. I mean, you know, because a lot of people, what we see with some people is they just, they have some script running somewhere and it's blasting us. And, you know, maybe then they left the company or whatever, and it's still just blasting away. So ultimately you need to do things like blocking the IP address or whatever. But the challenge of this is that these are things that are kind of dangerous to automate, right? Because the last thing I want to do is turn off a customer or... <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And there are a lot of edge cases. And so we try to take a friendly approach, try to email with the, the user. And but that assumes they read their email, you know, and then people do things like try to sign up with anonymous email services and things like that, where it's obvious they're never going to read the email. So we block all that. It's an it's an ongoing arms race. There's no silver bullet that solves this. And as I said, there's no solution also to people just making mistakes in their code. I mean, we'll see things like, you know, people will send us literally, you know, they send us the same address, at, you know, 50,000 times, you know, and like, guess what? It's still in the same place. It hasn't moved. <laughs> Are you generous if a poor developer messages you saying I've absolutely rinsed my... Well, <laughs> you know, you do get it. <laughs> I guess you, ha- you, have, you have daily caps, don't you? Not monthly caps. So that's not as bad if you didn't rinse the entire... But, you know, I mean, we have customers. If you're a customer, you don't have caps. And people blast, uh, you know, and people just have mistakes in their code. And of course, you know, we try to have documentation or whatever. You, you do get burned out sometimes because it's like, you know, people are like, how the hell does this work? And they're like, did you even spend 10 seconds looking at the documentation, buddy? I mean, like people ask questions with their answered, like on the first line of the documentation. Yeah, I did see you have a lot of library support as well. So as in for other people to integrate. So from that point of view. Yeah, it's a it's a. It's a struggle. <laughs> you get you get burned out on on it. But in on in in I I you know I don't. We also have many very good customers who come and things work right away, and you know they 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 gladly pay us every month. So you know I I don't want to make it too too dark of a situation out of it. But yeah, that that is one thing. The freemium model. I mean, I knew people would try to cheat, but I did not appreciate to what lengths people would go to cheat. I mean, some people will just die absolutely diabolically they believe it's so weird too because like presumably these are people like if they went into a store they wouldn't feel like they could just steal things off the shelves but for some reason they feel like coming into my online shop it's completely fine to try to steal things <laughs> i don't know yes that's that's something about being hidden behind your computer that thinks people can get away with it we have though it's, it's sort of similar problem with snapshot with people trying to sign up until they realize that you can only sync one cloud account with us and if you try and do it from another account it won't let you so i get quite a few support requests saying oh i can't sync my account I'm like yeah you've already signed up right, <laughs> so right. You, can't, you can't you can't have more plans to get around like because we have like you can back up one thing on the free plan yeah, you can't sign up. You can't sign up twenty different teams to get around it. So exactly, yeah, exactly. Makes it interesting. They, they, those people just disappear anyway. They're not actually interested. In well, we, I mean, customer. we do, we do have some people <laughs> where they they see the emails and then they become a customer and and it kind of works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have freemium if it didn't work, would you? It's an ongoing struggle, and and the problem is it eats up a lot of time and concentration and energy, and so you do get burned out out of <laughs> frustrated. It. I mean, you get frustrated, <laughs> you get, and you know, it's like you're sitting there arguing with someone on email about whether they should spend 20 euro with you. You're like, what is it? This is not worth my time, you know? <laughs> no. So something else you mentioned before the call was around your security bounty program. And I wondered if um, you've had any. Yeah, this is uh, another int- one that's kind of well-intended, but leads to some issues. So one of the big key selling points of our services is the privacy aspect of it and the data protection. I mean, we're, we're a, a German business based in the EU. And a lot of people, one of the reasons that they prefer to work with us because in versus someone like Google is because they don't want to give their data to Google. And so we take a, put a big emphasis on privacy and, and security and, and things like that. So a couple of years ago, we then thought, let's do kind of a security bounty program to make sure that, you know, we're not missing anything. And 
this has been a very much a mixed blessing in that we definitely had some people who reported kind of obscure edge case security issues to us. You know, I mean, we've never had any kind of uh, breach or anything, but I mean, things will people be like, oh, on your demo page, if I if my query is six megabytes large, then it leads to a crash or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, don't do that. But <laughs> but you know, then you're like, okay, all right, well, thanks for making us aware of this kind of edge case. But the big problem is, so we have this public security bounty page, and we tell people like, look, here are the topics we're interested in, and here are the ones we're not interested in, and we're happy to pay you if you find a bug. And we did that like three, four years ago. And so after in the first year, several people pointed out small things. But now, like the low hanging fruit is long gone. But very occasionally, I don't know what happens, but you know, it, I guess these security bounty guys they they have their own networks and so someone will like post our site there and all of a sudden we'll get a wave of people trying to test our site oh i see yeah and coming with super annoying supposed exploits where it's like they're like i figured out a way to get access to your api you know like you need <laughs> this is a critical and you're like yeah well did you sign up for the free trial like you know like I mean, people who don't take any time to understand at all what our business is and, you know, what would be a valid security issue or not, or, and they just, it's, that also is one that gets increasingly annoying, almost to the point where I'm actually considering whether we should get rid of our security bounty program, because it's, it just generates so much kind of spam, low value, you know, noise, noise that we have to then deal with. I don't know, we're still deciding on that. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's a good signal to have the security boundary program. And occasionally we think people have found one or two things that are actually legitimate. <laughs> you seem to be very open about declaring like the Hall of Fame and uh, putting out what the issues are. And I, one thing I did like about it is you're very explicit about how you would pay people via a wise bank transfer instead oh of Oh my PayPal. God. So this, let me give you another example. Because <laughs> I have this problem. People, people will be like, oh my God, here's this issue. This is an emergency. Like I can hack your system. You're like, well, you know, okay, maybe you can cause a, a server error, but I'm not sure that's hacking our system. But okay, this is a legitimate thing. So fine, we're happy to pay you. And they'll be like, okay, here's my PayPal. I'm like, no, dude, I'm going to need an invoice. Like, I'm going to, you know, and they're like, what? How, how does that work? I have no, you know, like they have no concept of it. No, I have this issue as well. They always want PayPal and never want to present an invoice with an address or anything. They just want to be. Exactly, exactly. And I'm, and I'm like, like dude, I can't really pay you, to be honest. <laughs> do, do, I mean, do you understand how like a legitimate business works or whatever? And the reality is they don't. They don't. Because usually these are guys in um, very young guys, many of them, I guess, students or, or something. And they have no kind of professional experience at all. Certainly no professional experience in like uh, the Western context. Most of them are in Southeast Asia. And it's just, it's almost laughable sometimes. You know, like we had one guy who he reported something like Friday evening, our time, and then sent like four emails over the course of the weekend. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, buddy, like my opinion of you has gone from like, okay, this is interesting to like, I hate this guy because like, I mean, he's just spamming me all weekend. I'm like, do you understand? Like, like this is not an urgent issue and I'm not, I'll deal with it on Monday. But they just have no concept of it. None whatsoever it's so funny i've had exactly the same experience just been and then yeah it's like we'll investigate and get back to you and then every six hours <laughs> right exactly every, exactly i'm like uh you know well also then you know i mean our team is quite small and people assume that we're some global multinational or something you know so not quite there yet the one i get a lot is email spoofing and then i ask them to send me an email that's spoofed and they can't right 
And I was just like, okay, well, <laughs> I went, no, I'm no longer bother to accept these. Well, um, or people will report a bug and, you know, they'll go through the effort of like in the email, like the first reference to the company will be our company. But then later it, it's like other websites, you know, where they obviously are just cutting and pasting and sending to oh. everyone and they're like, <laughs> right back and they're like, maybe you should take this up with the other site. I don't, you know, it doesn't seem to be about us. Sometimes I don't reply and eventually give up. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's my solution. Sometimes, if you email them, you end up with more more work than necessary. Yeah, it's okay. it's an, it's always a struggle. It's always kind of a pain. So that's one that we really do need to think about about whether we keep the security bounty thing on because I think it's a good signal to potential customers, but it's like it, it comes at a real cost in terms of time and effort to process these dubious requests. So, yeah, cool. I guess. My last question that I'm going to ask is because obviously Snapshot is a backup product. I'm curious what your current backup strategies are. Right. If you're willing, so, to, if you're willing to go into that detail. No, no, of course. Of course <laughs> I am. So first of all, our first strategy is have as little data that requires being backed up as possible. Okay. So <laughs> when someone comes and signs up for our service, they're just giving us an email address. Like I don't really have much more about them. And I don't necessarily have anything more about them. And like, you know, if they become a customer, that's all done with Stripe or whatever. I don't have any payment information about them or anything. So our main backup strategy, we have very little data that we need to back up. Then when, when people are using our service, we are generating logs. But it's actually not that critical. You know, if I lost a day of logs, it wouldn't be tragic or anything. Nevertheless, we do back that up. So we back up our user database and our, our logs. And the main strategy is we... Some of that we do locally within the service that we have at Hetzner, but then we also do it offsite with a company called RSync. So we, you know, zip up all the data and encrypt it and stick it on RSync, which basically just gives you, you know, via SSH, you put the data there and we can get it back out. And if we need to, I guess the main thing, to be honest, we've never had a situation where we've had to fall back on the backups. And also, I mean, we are using Heroku, so they also have backups and things. So. Nevertheless, what we do do, I mean, the one one thing, as I said, we put a huge emphasis on being a stable service for our customers, not so much on new innovations, but just on stability and, and being really reliable. And so one of the ways that we do that is we have a very regular schedule of where we say, okay, today we're only going to work on tests. And today we're only going to work on the speed of the service. And today we're going to work on for example, backups. Once a quarter, we have backup day where we make sure the backups are still working. We think about like, is there any new thing that we need to back up that maybe we aren't yet or whatever. And so it's more about just setting aside specific time to work on these issues. You know, Once a quarter, we have what we call upgrade day where we very systematically upgrade our things. We also do things like once a quarter, reboot every single machine, make sure it comes back up. And make sure uh, everything's running as expected. Make sure you know the data is flowing around, which would include the backups. All those kinds of things. So very systematically, kind of setting aside the time to work on those things. So you're in a situation where you could drop a server and rebuild without you know you haven't got to. Yes, worry yes. About I mean every every and... server is um, completely redundant, usually many times over. So some of the smaller um, services we use Docker. So it's very easy to spin up. And some of the services are not dockerized, but fully redundant and across multiple um, multiple physical server farms. So 
right now we we all of our server from so so we have multiple locations within Europe. We are debating whether we should get a location in North America. So that might be a next step. The the issue with that is, you know, as I said, we're an EU company, and actually many of the customers come because of to us because of GDPR, and they don't want the data to leave the EU. So it would require maybe some different logic to make sure that, like, yeah, some proper isolation between the two. Exactly, exactly. So that might be a project for later this year, but there hasn't been huge demand from that. For the, there's been a lot of demand from customers to have servers in the EU. There hasn't been demand to have servers in North America. Yeah, we've ex- we've seen the same thing. People ask where they are, and we say they're in Ireland, but they're not. One day, I dream of having <laughs> a completely separated version that's just like North America or the UK, because we're in the UK, and that feels like a bit of a grey area now with the whole <laughs> EU, not EU, and stuff. It's just oh, uh, well, actually, we, when we originally started, <laughs> our company started in the UK because we had been living there, and then then Brexit means Brexit, so we moved to Germany. Interesting. We got a lot of, in the lead up to Brexit, a lot of customers, a lot of EU customers started asking us about this and because it was the same time GDPR was kind of happening. And they were like, you know, is our data going to be outside the EU? Can we still work with you? And even at that time, our servers were in Germany. So the data was actually always in the EU. But I could tell this was going to be a big issue with customers. And I was really worried that in the future, some EU customers might just look at our website and be like, oh, they're in the UK, they're not in the EU, right? And as a result, then we would get, you know, crossed off the candidate list or whatever. So then we were like, look, we got to move. So we moved. It was a big project. I mean, from a technical standpoint, it it was, it, it wasn't a big project at all, because our servers were always in Germany. But from a legal admin standpoint, it was a big project. But I have to say, I'm glad I I'm glad we did it. We we definitely saw an increase in business than from from EU companies. Maybe that's something I should consider. <laughs> An EU subsidiary. I honestly think you you maybe should consider, or you should offer. You should very clearly offer some sort of EU service where the backups never leave the EU and things like that. I, I, yeah, that, we have that at the moment where people can choose where the backups flow, but um, okay. just from an organizational point of view, uh, right? Maybe <laughs> it seems, um, as you say, a bit of a legal. Uh, add paperwork problem. So yeah, I mean, whether it makes sense or not, this is something you you can imagine the potential customer, like some project manager, who's like, okay, solve this problem, and on their checklist is like, is it GDPR compliant? Is the data in the EU? And they have to be able yeah, to check yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, or they go through to the, they they decide and they go through to the team above and they're like, no, it's yeah, <laughs> a exactly. flat, flat no from us. So cool. Okay, well, I think we've probably covered quite enough topics there. So. I think we should wrap up here. Well, thanks a lot. Unless you have any other points you want no, to um, say? You know, the main point I would say is good luck to everyone. <laughs> I guess the final point I would make is kind of a rehash of the, the one I had about really understanding why your customers value your service. And like for us, it's very tempting as engineers to think it's all about new features, new features, new features. And in our case, it's it's really not. It's It's about get the basics working 100% really well. And that necessitates putting in the time and the effort, you know, things like, you know, making sure the software is, uh, you're always on top of all the security stuff uh, and the newest versions, but also things like backups or whatever, and really making sure you set aside the time and effort to do that. That'd be my main advice because it won't just happen on its own. You got to put in the time. And there's some good closing words. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to the, to the rest of the show and all, all the various guests that you have. Yep. Plenty of recordings to come. <laughs> See you later. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Pushing to Production podcast from Snapshooter.com. Snapshooter is a backup service for all of your online servers, databases, and applications. From the whole server snapshots at providers like DigitalOcean, AWS, and Voltra, as well as direct backups from any provider to your given storage of choice, S3, Backblaze, Google Drive, the list goes on. Check us out today. We have a limited free plan, or all plans come with a 14-day free trial with no card required. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week. Yeah.